0: Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales. Today, a story from one of my favorite female authors, Willa Cather. This story, The Enchanted Bluff, has a bittersweet ending. The story portrays a group of high school friends heading off for one last camping trip before they have to return to school. At the center of this story is the legend of the Lost Tribe of the Enchanted Mesa, the famous 430-foot-high sandstone butte in New Mexico. Like the boys in her story, Keita had been fascinated by the legend since she was a child, but she had never visited the region. Finally, in 1912, she stayed in the southwest for several months, visited the Enchanta Mesa, and she was, in a word, enchanted. She returned again and again for many years, and she reused The Legend of the Lost Tribe in two of her novels, once in the Tom Outland story section of the professor's house, and again in Death Came for the Archbishop. One small note, the divide she mentions is the tableland in southern Nebraska between the Republican and Little Blue Rivers. And now, The Enchanted Bluff, by Willa Cather. We had our swim before sundown, and while we were cooking our supper, the oblique rays of light made a dazzling glare on the white sand about us. The translucent red ball itself sank behind the brown stretches of cornfield as we sat down to eat. "'and the warm layer of air that had rested over the water "'and our clean sandbar grew fresher "'and smelled of the rank ironweed and sunflowers "'growing on the flatter shore. "'The river was brown and sluggish, "'like any other of the half-dozen streams "'that watered the Nebraska cornlands. "'On one shore was an irregular line of bald, clay bluffs, "'where a few scrub oaks with thick trunks and flat, twisted tops "'threw light shadows on the long grass. "'The western shore was low and level,' with cornfields that stretched to the skyline, and all along the water's edge were little sandy coves and beaches where slim cottonwoods and willow saplings flickered. The turbulence of the river in springtime discouraged milling, and, beyond keeping the old red bridge in repair, the busy farmers did not concern themselves with the stream, so the sand-town boys were left in undisputed possession. In the autumn we hunted quail through the miles of stubble and fodderland along the flat shore and, after the winter skating season was over and the ice had gone out, the spring freshets and flooded bottoms gave us our great excitement of the year. The channel was never the same for two successive seasons. Every spring the swollen stream undermined a bluff to the east, or bit out a few acres of cornfield to the west and whirled the soil away to deposit it in spumy mud banks somewhere else. When the water fell low in midsummer. New sandbars were thus exposed, to dry and whiten in the August sun. Sometimes these were banked so firmly that the fury of the next freshets failed to unseat them. The little willow seedlings emerged triumphantly from the yellow froth, broke into spring leaf, shot up into summer growth, and with their mesh of roots bound together the moist sand beneath them against the batterings of another April. Here and there a cottonwood soon glittered among them, quivering in the low current of air that, even on breathless days when the dust hung like smoke above the wagon road, trembled along the face of the water. It was on such an island, in the third summer of its yellow-green, that we built our watch-fire, not in the thicket of dancing willow wands, but on a level terrace of fine sand which had been added that spring. A new little bit of world, beautifully ridged with ripple marks, and strewn with the tiny skeletons of turtles and fish, "'all as white and dry as if they'd been expertly cured. "'We had been careful not to mar the freshness of the place, "'although we often swam out to it on summer evenings "'and lay on the sand to rest. "'This was our last watchfire of the year, "'and there were reasons why I should remember it "'better than any of the others. "'Next week the other boys were to file back "'to their old places in the Sandtown High School, "'but I was to go up to the Divide "'to teach my first country school in the Norwegian district.' "'I was already homesick at the thought of quitting the boys with whom i had always played, "'of leaving the river, and going up into a windy plain "'that was all windmills and cornfields and big pastures, "'where there was nothing willful or unmanageable in the landscape, "'no new islands, and no chance of unfamiliar birds, "'such as often followed the watercourses. "'Other boys came and went and used the river for fishing or skating, "'but we six were sworn to the spirit of the stream.' And we were friends mainly because of the river. There were the two Hassler boys, Fritz and Otto, sons of the little German tailor. They were the youngest of us, ragged boys of ten and twelve, with sunburned hair, weather stained faces, and pale blue eyes. Otto, the elder, was the best mathematician in school, and clever at his books, but he always dropped out in the spring term as if the river could not get on without him. He and Fritz caught the fat, horned catfish. "'and sold them about the town, "'and they lived so much in the water "'that they were as brown and sandy as the river itself. "'There was Percy Pound, "'a fat, freckled boy with chubby cheeks, "'who took half a dozen boys' story papers "'and was always being kept in "'for reading detective stories behind his desk. "'There was Tip Smith, "'destined by his freckles and red hair "'to be the buffoon in all our games, "'though he walked like a timid little old man "'and had a funny, cracked laugh.' Tip worked hard in his father's grocery store every afternoon and swept it out before school in the morning. Even his recreations were laborious. He collected cigarette cards and tin tobacco tags indefatigably and would sit for hours humped up over a snarling little scroll saw which he kept in his attic. His dearest possessions were some little pill bottles that purported to contain grains of wheat from the Holy Land, water from the Jordan and the Dead Sea, and earth from the Mount of Olives. "'His father had bought these dull things from a Baptist missionary who peddled them, and Tip, seemed to de- "'and Tip seemed to derive great satisfaction from their remote origin. "'The tall boy was Arthur Adams. "'He had fine hazel eyes that were almost too reflective and sympathetic for a boy, "'and such a pleasant voice that we all loved to hear him read aloud. "'Even when he had to read poetry aloud at school, no one ever thought of laughing. "'To be sure, he was not at school very much at the time.' He was 17 and should have finished the high school the year before, but he was always off somewhere with his gun. Arthur's mother was dead, and his father, who was feverishly absorbed in promoting schemes, wanted to send the boy away to school and get him off his hands. But Arthur always begged off for another year and promised to study. I remember him as a tall, brown boy with an intelligent face, always lounging among a lot of us little fellows, laughing at us oftener than with us. "'but with such a soft, satisfied laugh "'that we felt rather flattered when we provoked it. "'In after years, people said that Arthur "'had been given to evil ways even as a lad. "'And it is true that we often saw him "'with the gambler's sons "'and with old Spanish Fanny's boy, "'but if he learned anything ugly in their company, "'he never betrayed it to us. "'We would have followed Arthur anywhere, "'and I'm bound to say that he led us "'into no worse places than the cattail marshes "'and the stubble fields. "'These, then,' "'were the boys who camped with me that summer night upon the sandbar. "'After we finished our supper, we beat the willow thicket for driftwood. "'By the time we had collected enough, night had fallen, "'and the pungent, weedy smell from the shore increased with the coolness. "'We threw ourselves down about the fire "'and made another futile effort to show Percy Pound the little dipper. "'We had tried it often before, but he could never be got past the big one.' "'You see those three big stars just below the handle, "'with the bright one in the middle?' said Otto Hasler. "'That's Orion's belt, and the bright one is the clasp.' I crawled behind Otto's shoulder and sighted up his arm to the star that seemed perched upon the tip of his steady forefinger. The Hasler boys did seine-fishing at night, and they knew a good many stars. Percy gave up the little dipper and lay back on the sand, his hands clasped under his head. "'I can see the North Star,' he announced. "'contentedly, pointing toward it with his big toe. "'Anyone might get lost and need to know that. "'We all looked up at it. "'How do you suppose Columbus felt "'when his compass didn't point north any more? "'Tip asked. "'Otto shook his head. "'My father says that there was another north star once, "'and that maybe this one won't last always. "'I wonder what would happen to us down here "'if anything went wrong with it.' "'Arthur chuckled. "'I wouldn't worry, Ot, Nothing's apt to happen to it in your time. Look at the Milky Way. There must be lots of good dead Indians. We lay back and looked, meditating at the dark cover of the world. The gurgle of the water had become heavier. We had often noticed a mutinous, complaining note in it at night, quite different from its cheerful daytime chuckle, and seeming like the voice of a much deeper and more powerful stream. Our water had always those two moods, "'the one of sunny complacence, "'the other of inconsolable, passionate regret. "'Queer how the stars are all in sort of diagrams,' "'remarked Otto. "'You could do most any proposition in geometry with them. "'They always look as if they meant something. "'Some folks say everybody's fortune "'is all written out in the stars, don't they?' "'Ah, they believe so in the old country,' "'Fritz affirmed. "'But Arthur only laughed at him. "'You're thinking of Napoleon, Fritzy. "'He had a star that went out when he began to lose battles. "'I guess the stars don't keep any close tally on Sandtown folks.' "'We were speculating on how many times we could count a hundred "'before the evening star went down behind the cornfields, "'when someone cried, "'There comes the moon, and it's as big as a cartwheel.' "'We all jumped up to greet it as it swam over the bluffs behind us. "'It came up like a galleon in full sail, "'an enormous barbaric thing, red as an angry heathen god.' "'When the moon came up red like that, the Aztecs used to sacrifice their prisoners on the temple top,' Percy announced. "'Go on, Perse. You got that out of golden days. Do you believe that, Arthur?' I appealed. Arthur answered, quite seriously. "'Like as not, the moon was one of their gods. When my father was in Mexico City, he saw the stone where they used to sacrifice their prisoners.' "'As we dropped down by the fire again, "'someone asked whether the mound-builders were older than the Aztecs. "'When we once got upon the mound-builders, "'we never willingly got away from them, "'and we were still conjecturing when we heard a loud splash in the water. "'Must have been a big cat jumping,' said Fritz. "'They do sometimes. They must see bugs in the dark. "'Look what a track the moon makes!' "'There was a long, silvery streak on the water.' and where the current fretted over a big log, it boiled up like gold pieces. Suppose there ever was any gold hid away in this old river? Fritz asked. He lay like a little brown Indian, close to the fire, his chin on his hand, and his bare feet in the air. His brother laughed at him, but Arthur took his suggestion seriously. Some of the Spaniards thought there was gold up here somewhere. Seven cities chucked full of gold, and Coronado and his men came up to hunt it. The Spaniards were all over this country once. Percy looked interested. Was that before the Mormons went through? We all laughed at this. Long enough before, before the Pilgrim Fathers, Perse. Maybe they came along this very river. They always followed the water courses. I wonder where this river really does begin, Tip mused. That was an old and a favored mystery which the map did not clearly explain. On the map, the little black line stopped somewhere in western Kansas, but since rivers generally rose in the mountains, it was only reasonable to suppose that ours came from the Rockies. Its destination, we knew, was the Missouri, and the Hasler boys always maintained that we could embark at Sandtown in flood time, follow our noses, and eventually arrive at New Orleans. Now they took up their old argument. If us boys had grit enough to try it, it wouldn't take no time to get to Kansas City and St. Joe we began to talk about the places we wanted to go to. The Hasler boys wanted to see the stockyards in Kansas City, and Percy wanted to see a big store in Chicago. Arthur was interlocutor and did not betray himself. Now, it's your turn, Tip. Tip rolled over on his elbow and poked the fire, and his eyes looked shyly out of his queer, tight little face. My place is awful far away. My Uncle Bill told me about it. Tip's Uncle Bill was a wanderer, bitten with mining fever, who had drifted into Sandtown with a broken arm, and when it was well, had drifted right out again. Well, where is it? Oh, it's down in New Mexico somewheres. There aren't no railroads or anything. You have to go on mules, and you run out of water before you get there and have to drink canned tomatoes. Well, go on, kid. What's it like when you do get there? Tip sat up and excitedly began his story. There's a big red rock there that goes right up out of the sand for about 900 feet. The country's flat all around it, and this here rock goes up all by itself, like a monument. They call it the Enchanted Bluff down there, because no white man has ever been on top of it. The sides are smooth rock, and straight up, like a wall. The Indians say that hundreds of years ago, before the Spanish came, there was a village way up there in the air. THE TRIBE THAT LIVED THERE HAD SOME SORT OF STEPS, MADE OUT OF WOOD AND BARK, HUNG DOWN OVER THE FACE OF THE BLUFF, AND THE BRAVES WENT DOWN TO HUNT, AND CARRIED WATER UP in BIG JARS SWUNG ON THEIR backs. THEY KEPT A BIG SUPPLY OF WATER AND DRIED MEAT UP THERE, AND NEVER WENT DOWN EXCEPT TO HUNT. THEY WERE A PEACEFUL TRIBE THAT MADE CLOTH AND POTTERY, AND THEY WENT UP THERE TO GET OUT OF THE WARS. YOU SEE, THEY COULD PICK OFF ANY WAR PARTY THAT TRIED TO GET UP THEIR LITTLE STEPS. THE INDIANS SAY THEY WERE A HANDSOME PEOPLE and they had some sort of queer religion. Uncle Bill thinks they were cliff dwellers who had got into trouble and left home. They weren't fighters, anyhow. We'll return to our story right after these sponsor messages. And now, back to The Enchanted Bluff by Willa Cather. One time the Braves were down hunting and an awful storm came up, a kind of waterspout and when they got back to their rock, they found their little staircase had been all broken to pieces, and only a few steps were left hanging away up in the air. While they were camped at the foot of the rock, wondering what to do, a war party from the north came along and massacred them to a man, with all the old folks and women looking on from the rock. Then the war party went on south and left the village to get down the best way they could. Of course, they never got down. They couldn't. They starved to death up there, "'and when the war party came back on their way north, "'they could hear the children crying from the edge of the bluff "'where they'd crawled out, "'but they didn't see a sign of a grown Indian, "'and nobody's ever been up there since. "'We all exclaimed at this dolorous legend and sat up. "'There couldn't have been many people up there,' Percy demurred. "'How big is the top?' "'Oh, pretty big,' Tip said. "'Big enough so that the rock doesn't look nearly as tall as it is. "'The top's bigger than the base.' "'The bluff is sort of worn away for several hundred feet up. "'That's one reason it's so hard to climb. "'I asked how the Indians got up in the first place. "'Nobody knows how they got up or when. "'A hunting party came along once "'and saw that there was a town up there, and that was all. "'Otto rubbed his chin and looked thoughtful. "'Of course there must be some way to get up there. "'Couldn't people get a rope over some way and pull a ladder up?' "'Tip's little eyes were shining with excitement.' I know a way. Me and Uncle Bill talked it over. There's a kind of rocket that would take a rope over. Lifesavers use them. And then you could hoist a rope ladder and peg it down at the bottom and make it tight with guy ropes on the other side. I'm going to climb that there bluff, and I got it all planned out. Fritz asked what he expected to find when he got up there. Bones, maybe. Or the ruins of their town. Or pottery. Or some of their idols. There might be most anything up there. "'Anyhow, I just want to see.' "'You sure nobody else has been up there, Dip?' Arthur asked. "'Dead, sure. Hardly anybody ever goes down there. "'Some hunters tried to cut steps in the rock once, "'but they didn't get higher than a man can reach. "'The bluff's all red granite, "'and Uncle Bill thinks it's a boulder the glaciers left. "'It's a queer place, anyhow. "'Nothing but cactus and desert for hundreds of miles, "'and yet right under the bluff there's good water and plenty of grass.' That's why the bison used to go down there. Suddenly we heard a scream above our fire and jumped up to see a dark, slim bird floating southward far above us. A whooping crane we knew by her cry and her long neck. We ran to the edge of the island, hoping we might see her alight, but she wavered southward along the river course until we lost her. The Hassler boys declared that by the look of the heavens it must be after midnight. So we threw more wood on our fire, put on our jackets, and curled down in the warm sand. Several of us pretended to doze, but I fancy we were really thinking about Tip's bluff and the extinct people. Over in the wood, the ring doves were calling mournfully to one another, and once we heard a dog bark, far away. "'Somebody's getting into old Tommy's melon patch,' Fritz murmured, sleepily, but nobody answered him. By and by, Percy spoke out of the shadow. "'Say, Tip, when you go down there, will you take me with you?' "'Maybe. "'Suppose one of us beat you down there, Tip.' "'Whoever gets to the bluff first "'has got to promise to tell the rest of us "'exactly what he finds,' "'remarked one of the Hassler boys. "'And to this we all readily assented.' "'Somewhat reassured, "'I dropped off to sleep. "'I must have dreamed about a race for the bluff, "'for I woke in a kind of fear "'that other people were getting ahead of me "'and that I was losing my chance. "'I sat up in my damp clothes "'and looked at the other boys.' who, lay tumbled in uneasy attitudes about the dead fire. It was still dark, but the sky was blue with the last wonderful azure of night. The stars glistened like crystal globes and trembled as if they shone through a depth of clear water. Even as I watched, they began to pale, and the sky brightened. Day came suddenly, almost instantaneously. I turned for another look at the blue night, and it was gone, Everywhere the birds began to call, and all manner of little insects began to chirp and hop about in the willows. A breeze sprang up from the west and brought the heavy smell of ripened corn. The boys rolled over and shook themselves. We stripped and plunged into the river just as the sun came up over the windy bluffs. When I came home to Sandtown at Christmas time, and talked over the whole project of the Enchanted Bluff, renewing our resolution to find it, although that was twenty years ago, "'None of us have ever climbed the Enchanted Bluff. "'Percy Pound is a stockbroker in Kansas City "'and will go nowhere that his red touring car cannot carry him. "'Otto Hassler went on the railroad and lost his foot breaking, "'after which he and Fritz succeeded their father as the town tailors. "'Arthur sat about the sleepy little town all his life. "'He died before he was twenty-five. "'The last time I saw him, when I was home on one of my college vacations,' "'He was sitting in a steamer chair under a cottonwood tree "'in the little yard behind one of the two sand-town saloons. "'He was very untidy, and his hand was not steady. "'But when he rose, unabashed, to greet me, "'his eyes were as clear and warm as ever. "'When I had talked with him for an hour and heard him laugh again, "'I wondered how it was that when nature had taken such pains with a man, "'from his hands to the arch of his long foot, "'she'd ever lost him in sand-town.' "'He joked about Tip Smith's bluff "'and declared he was going down there "'just as soon as the weather got cooler. "'He thought the Grand Canyon might be worthwhile, too. "'I was perfectly sure when I left him "'that he would never get beyond the high plank fence "'and the comfortable shade of the cottonwood. "'And, indeed, it was under that very tree "'that he died one summer morning. "'Tip Smith still talks about going to New Mexico. "'He married a slatternly, unthrifty country girl.' "'has been much tied to a perambulator, "'and has grown stooped and gray "'from irregular meals and broken sleep. "'But the worst of his difficulties are now over, "'and he has, as he says, "'come into easy water. "'When I was last in Sandtown, "'I walked home with him late one moonlit night "'after he had balanced his cash "'and shut up his store. "'We took the long way around "'and sat down on the schoolhouse steps, "'and between us we quite revived "'the romance of the lone red rock "'and the extinct people.' Tip insists that he still means to go down there, but he thinks now he'll wait until his boy Bert is old enough to go with him. Bert has been led into the story and thinks of nothing but The Enchanted Bluff. Harper's Magazine, April, 1909 We hope you enjoyed The Enchanted Bluff by Willa Cather. If you enjoy 1001 Classic Short Stories... Please do share our show with others. Let people know that we've got hundreds and hundreds of short stories here, and all of them are great. They call classic literature classic for a reason. It never gets old, and the stories are still enjoyable. The stories are well written. The characters are real, and many of the stories stay with you for a long time. We'll return next Sunday night at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. Until then, everyone, this is your host, John Hagedorn. This is 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales. Also, be sure to catch us at 1001 Stories for the Road. Stay safe, and we'll be back soon.